Welcome once again to Film File. Just the reviews. We're up to volume five. Hit the music. So, as regular listeners will know, the Just The Reviews are a collection of, well, it's in the title, Just The Reviews from past episodes. And this special compilation is from the first half of last year, episodes 21 through to 25. And we'll be covering films such as Boogie Nights, Monty Python's Holy Grail, Last of the Mohicans, Flash Gordon, Goodwill Hunting, Enter the Dragon, The Town, Rushmore, Never Be Done election and one flew over the cuckoo's nest thank you very much enjoy the listen okay so over the last couple of weeks as you know i have been setting films for andy of films the classic films that he's not seen we've we tackled quite a few and last week i was absolutely shocked yet no mortified to realize andy <laughs> had never seen boogie nights so that was a film that i set him andy let me know what you thought of Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Night. Came out in uh, 1997, so it's a period drama. As I said, produced, written, and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, it was set in, in Los Angeles in the 70s, and it really chronicles one particular character, Dirk Diggler, played by Mark Wahlberg. And the first time, to be honest, that I think Mark Wahlberg proved himself to be a star for me. Uh, through, yeah, it was a breakout role, wasn't it? Yeah, through, through the rise of the golden age of pornography brilliant cast uh so we said mark Wahlberg, julianne moore burt reynolds don cheadle john c riley william h macy uh philip seymour hoffman heather graham i love it it would be uh an all-time favorite for me but andy boogie nights what did you think i have mixed thoughts on this mm. i i think it's okay i think it, it, it's an above average film but the tone of the film was all over the place at times I couldn't work out if it was a dark comedy, a serious drama, or what. And the acting from some of the... You've mentioned the lineup of cast, and there's some great names in there. But at times, the acting feels somewhat flat. And I don't know whether it was deliberately flat, but people like William H. Macy is either having a really bad day or is deliberately underwhelming throughout it. And he's got one... that There's a powerful moment in the film that should have had more of an impact on me relating to the, his character. But I, think I didn't care. Was, yeah. I didn't care at all because I wasn't convinced with the character because it just didn't it didn't sell to me. And I don't know. I, I think the film seems over long for the story it's trying to tell. At that point, I will agree with you. I think, and that's why I've never really gone back. I saw it at the cinema, absolutely adored it. I bought the Criterion DVD, which was fantastically packaged. Mm. I think I've watched it once, but I've never watched it again. And I, and I said, I love this film, but two hours... 32 minutes i think that's it's only let down it, it was a mistake to be that long it spends a lot of time on characters that don't really matter or serve the story at all and you know this is a this is a paul thomas anderson kind of approach anyway where he throws in multiple people and he did it much better in my opinion with magnolia where there was so many different people so many members of cast you see i'm the opposite plot lines and they wove together whereas in this the other cast members are in there just to be in there and just to flesh it out. But the taking away from screen time from the interesting part of the story with pointless side diversions. But don't get me wrong. I mean, Julianne Moore is fantastic in it. Burt Reynolds is amazing. Mark Wahlberg, like I said, his breakout role and what a breakout role. He, he 
dominated the screen, particularly in the very last shot. Um, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman is always great in every role that he's ever done, even the most subdued role. He's always stands out. And John C. Riley um, offered offered some of my, my my favorite funny moments with his, you know, how much do you bench? Uh, kind of like approach to things. I, I loved his character. Even if he was just a side character, he he stole the scenes that he was in. And they make up for the shortcomings that the film has, which is why it's not a bad film. It's just, it outstays its welcome at a few points during the film. I just about managed to pick it up again at the end to go, okay, then I'm, I'm, still, I'm still connected. I'm going to agree with you on, on part of that. Um, and and I, as I have said, do love it. Uh, I think it it's, has that sort of Nashville feel to it. That that's why it's sprawling, and there's so many characters. I can I see that. Um, I do think it slightly outstays its welcome in some scenes. Some scenes are uncomfortable. I think when they go to the drug dealer's house, for instance, it felt overdone. Uh, yeah. I think Burt Reynolds was was in his later life was never better. I think in it, and that's one of the the plus of it. I think it's a great film about the seventies that wasn't made in the seventies. It felt the detail was absolutely spot on. The uh, mood and the style characters. is perfectly evocative of the era. It was, it looked and felt like the seventies perfectly. It's got that. It, it it's impressive for me that it, it it's a film about a family. Ultimately, this this sort of weird world and subculture that they live in within the the world of pornography. It could have been about anything at that stage. But it's a film ultimately about family, and that's what I always liked about it. So for the obvious reasons. I, I think it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. It goes darker, very much darker. I think it's a, definitely in this sort of Nashville-esque storytelling. It's a film of two halves. Uh, then the first half is the, is the best part of the film. So it, there's there's a really at the heart of it a very simplistic storyline, which is a, a, yeah. a, a classic. If it was a Hollywood film, young injuring works their way to the top, once at the top. Um, it all falls apart, and and so it's, it really is a a very 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 simple storyline. But it's apart from Wahlberg's sort of breakout role, it's because it's in this world of pornography that gives it sort of this this strange outside of society sort of approach to it, and the and therefore these characters are all all a member of this sort of strange dysfunctional family. Um, I've got a lot of time for it. Maybe it's time for me. To, um, to 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 revisit it as well. See if it still holds up. Yeah, I mean, I, I I personally still feel that the latter films from Anderson are much stronger and much more confident examples of his skill. Magnolia, like I say, uses multiple characters. I feel in a much better way, where everyone serves an aspect of the story as it all weaves together. Punch Drunk Love, my favorite Adam Sandler film ever made. Absolutely brilliant film. I love this film to bits. There Will Be Blood is a solid character drama and really, like, it, it's got atmosphere and mood from start to finish. And The Master is another showcase of, like, how he, he puts uncomfortable situations in front of you but makes you engrossed in it. In my opinion, his CV got better with each film. It's, each film got stronger and stronger. But as an early example of him laying out his stall, I think it works. I think Boogie Nights works. It shows that, okay, I, I can use multiple people. I can set things in a time period. I can make things look evocative. I use musical cues in the right way. It shows his talent, but I think his later films refined his individual aspects of his talent and made them stronger films for me. I'm the opposite. I think there was a peak for me with Boogie Nights 
that he he become became more indulgent as a filmmaker that he was starting to flex that with with boogie nights um magnolia doesn't have the the effect on me that boogie nights does even though it's a well-told story it suffers from some of the the same sort of um off the track uh narrative ideals but i think boogie nights a stronger film but that's why we do this show so we can talk about films that we like and not always agree not always agreeing completely i mean it, it it's not a bad film i'm not i'm not completely i i don't say around and say you're wrong because you think it's good this is garbage this is this is a, a good film it's just i think possibly because all the hype that it's had and people always refer to it as like a really really strong film it's kind of like it it set the expectations a bit high on it Andy and i have been doing our deep dive on particular films last week we looked at the abyss this time we've gone for a complete change of heart uh, gone something a little bit closer to home, something I consider a classic, and that's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. From the people who brought you the 39th anniversary re-release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail and are already at work on the 41st anniversary re-release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail comes the long-awaited 40th anniversary re-release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. Back in cinemas in a special new edition. I told them we already got one. With up to 25% more peril. No, it's too perilous. We are the knights who say... Bring your friends, carry coconut shells, wear a fancy dress. This isn't my nose, it's a false one. You could even sing along if you like. Uh, stop that. You're not going into a song while I'm here. See it again for the first time on the big screen. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberry. Or if you've never seen it, see it now for the first time. Or see it for the first time since you last saw it. Or if you're very old or very ill, see it for what may be the last time. I'm not dead. I think I I could pull through, sir. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Back in cinemas for the first time since the last time. God be praised. Okay, so Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975 uh, British comedy, starring, of course, the Monty Python team. This was their first, not their first movie, because they did uh, now for something completely different, which, which was basically yes. a clip show but shot on film which was some of their greatest hits from the tv series but this was their their first real their first real solo project uh, as and you almost got to talk about monty python like they're a band because this was them breaking out of tv um written performed by the team of graham chapman john cleese terry gilliam terry jones who we recently lost eric idle uh, michael palin it was directed by gilliam and jones it was conceived during hiatus between the third and fourth series of the of the BBC series, and that was an interesting time for the team because that was the point at which Cleese, in particular, was getting less and less enamoured with the whole thing, and like didn't want to just continue churning out more Python stuff. Everything needed to be done for a reason, and you know they were starting to break apart. Uh, Chapman was on the peak of his alcoholism and an absolute mess to work with. So this was a, a very strange time for the team, which all led to this film. It's my favourite of the, of the Python films. 
I think there's much plaudit for Life of Brian, which is which is genius. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking anything away. And when I say it's my favourite, it's like trying to pick your favourite child. I just have more love for Monty Python and the Holy Grail than I do do for Life of Brian. And but that's just by the merest, merest uh, nth of a degree. I just prefer Holy Grail. It's so much fun to watch. I mean, I, I must have watched this on a loop during my student years. I loved it so much. I, I, I'm with you on this. This is my favourite Python screen outing. It just makes me cry every time I watched it. <laughs> now, I watched this recently. I introduced my son to it. It was only seven. And we were, I was using a quote. Uh, it was the Knights Who Say Knee line. <laughs> and I had to explain what the Knights Who Say Knee is. And he said he wanted to watch it. And I wasn't sure. I didn't think he'd get it. And, and he's absolutely he's absolutely bowled over by it. It's the film that he he, he can quote. Um, he thinks everything from the Trojan Rabbit to uh, um, and we've just been out in the car talking about coconuts and Swifts. You know, it's <laughs> it really is um, it really is a, a film that that hasn't lost any of its impact, any of its humour. All these years later, 40 odd years later, it's just a marvellous, ridiculously funny, heartwarming. And so much of it came about by pure lack of budget and accident. I mean, it, it got its investments for the film came from loads of individuals, including rock stars from Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Genesis, who all saw it as a good tax write off at the time uh, when there was like, wasn't it a 90% taxable? on um, a lot of rock stars at the time. So they saw it as a good way to get a tax write-off. And the coconuts came about due to them running out of budget to get enough horses. They could only really afford one horse. So it was like, eh, well, let's just have someone following the coconuts. And even the, the locations, apparently they, they, re they wanted to shoot in multiple castles. And they found all the locations that they wanted to shoot for each of the individual castles. And the Department of Environment uh, turned them down. They banned them from it just as they were about to start shooting because apparently the Pythons, in Terry Gilliam's words, uh, they were told that they were doing things that were not consistent with the dignity and the fabric of the building, to which Terry Jones's reply was, these places have been built for torturing and killing people and you couldn't do a bit of comedy. Ridiculous. They ended up filming at uh, Dooncastle in, in Glencoe, yep. which was privately owned. And then, uh, and then used a lot of models for... Have you ever seen the series Outlander? Yes, it was filmed in the same place. They filmed. They both use uh, uh, Doom Castle, but yeah, that that was the primary location. Graham Chapman. He went so he went dry during the filming of it because, like I mentioned before, he was at the peak of his alcoholism for the years leading up to it getting made. And when they came to shoot him, he went. He decided, "I'm not going to drink. I'm going to take this seriously." Because he was forgetting his lines. It was all over the place. But as a result, he was suffering from DTS, and he was having anxiety attacks. He was shaking on set. He he had an immense fear of heights as a result of it. And so the the first scene that they were shooting was the the, the chasm scene with the like being asked the questions and then having to walk across the bridge. And he couldn't do it. And so they had to get like someone else to act as him for doing the long shots of it. It it was it's a film that so many things went wrong during the making of it. But all those things made it a better film. Yeah, it kind of makes the film work as a Python film because it feels surreal. It feels like it's a hodgepodge of ideas and a bit of a mess. And that's Python through and through. And that's why I've loved Python ever since I was a kid. Introduced to it through the TV series, like getting reruns on BBC. 
everything fits together in this film. The Pythons yes. are at the height. I mean, as you said, it was a low budget. It was something like four hundred thousand dollars. It it box office was about five million dollars. So they definitely definitely made their money back. It was it was directed by Gilliam and Jones, who'd never directed a film before. So it was a huge learning experience for them in learning how to make a film. Uh, the cast described the, the novice directing style as employing the level of mutual disrespect always found in Python's <laughs> work. Everything works. It There is not a gag that falls short in this film. In every scene is a laugh-out-loud, quotable piece of comedy that is just priceless. In a way that, the, because it's rough and ready, it, it captures more of more of medieval Britain than the current version of King Arthur directed by <laughs> Guy Ritchie could fail yep. on, on every level to do because it's dirty and because it's, it's it is a rock and roll film. It, it's a, it's a punk rock film. It's, it's made on a shoestring. It looks great. It's rough and ready out around the edges. And that's what makes it classic. And the writing of it makes it hysterically funny. It was interesting. Uh, I, I, as I've mentioned before, I'm listening through the autobiographies from various members of the Python team, and Cleese was one. When Cleese is talking about his early childhood, he's got a whole story about an early childhood trauma, which was when a really cute, cuddly rabbit, when he was, he must have been about four or five, he went to stroke it and it nipped him. And it, it, it really unnerved him, and like he, he couldn't face rabbits from that point onwards. And it's like, was this. Was this where the idea for the rabbits being the big nasty beastie <laughs> came from? And it all makes sense that they were drawing on like little comical anecdotes of their own to throw into the script. And it, it's, a, I mean, that, that scene is brilliant, especially like with John Cleese as Tim, the enchanter, talking about it. Like, Look at him. He's got great big teeth. Oh, and- it's classic. <laughs> I'm laughing it's now, a- just as you're doing <laughs> Uh, it's I mean, and you've mentioned the knights who say nay and knee, and you know I, I can also point out that they're no longer the knights who say knee; they're the knights who go eke 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 for dang for wee bong. Brr. It's just it just proves that low budget filmmaking is about when it's done well is about ideas and, and using locations to to be convincing, uh, and that's why why it works. It it doesn't matter that it's low budget, but that grimy gritty feel to it just adds to a certain authenticity to it that you saw Gilliam use again in Time Bandits. Uh, and you saw Jones use the location on, on uh, Life of Brian. Yeah. They, they just, just did it very well. I mean, right from the get-go of the movie, in the opening credits featuring pseudo-Swedish subtitles, which turn into appeal to visit Sweden and see <laughs> the country's moose. And the majestic there, fjords. <laughs> every second of this film, there is a gag. And those gags, which is what good comedy should do, constantly, constantly pay off. It doesn't matter about the plot because it's not a film about plot. There is a story. It's about the Holy Grail. That's all you need to know. It's individual scenes, vignettes almost, that, that, that will make you laugh time and time again. And you can watch it. And then 10 minutes later, go and watch it again and find something funny in it or just laugh out loud at the gag you've just seen. It's that good a comedy. <laughs> and, and what a finale. An epic an epic finale. <laughs> an epic finale. It's the, I mean, the, the finale is the only time that they seem to have uh, any other additional actors in it because the Python cast play everybody in a multitude of roles. 
and they clearly found some some extras um in the end and then there's a an unusual payoff and <laughs> i remember seeing it in the cinema and uh, and the film for those who know spoilers if you've not seen it the film's only been out 40 odd years <laughs> is the film just ends and people in the cinema were sat waiting to see who was going to get it first because has this film really really ended it's com- complete python even daftness from like throwaway lines one of them one of the police who are arresting them like he takes the shield off one of them and goes, that's an offensive weapon. That is ignoring the sword. And that always sets me chuckling. <laughs> yeah. There's so much depth to it. There's, there's so many reasons to revisit it. If you're ever feeling down, then just go back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail because as comedies goes, it's perfect. And the advantage is anyone who has Netflix, you've got instant access to it. If you've not already got it on DVD or Blu-ray because Netflix has all the Python material on there. Uh, and last week, we jumped out because we mentioned Michael Mann, uh, an opportunity for Andy to watch The Last of the Mohicans, directed by Michael Mann in 1992, set in 1757 during the French-Indian War. It was an adaptation of James Fenimore Cooper's 1826 novel. It starred Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeleine Stowe, Jodie May, Russell Means, I think it's a fantastic film. I love it a lot. It's one of my favourite Michael Mann films. But Andy, this is all about you now. What did you think to Last of the Mohicans? I'm, I'm getting the feeling now with the past few weeks that this is uh, like each one of these, you introduce as one of your favourite films. I've got, I've got thousands of favourite films. If if I ever have to, and sometimes <laughs> I've, when I've done radio and they say, what's been your favourite film ever? And, you know, I've, I've, I can do like 20. But I really liked <laughs> Last of the Mohicans when it came out. I thought it was, I thought it was a great way of taking a subject matter and a style of storytelling and completely giving it a, a, that modernistic touch. Yes, I know people said it was like an MTV generation, but hasn't everything become an MTV generation now, except MTV? Well, I, w- I wouldn't say it was necessarily an MTV generation, but it, it does come over. It does come over a tad too melodramatic at times, and it has an almost daytime soap opera aesthetic at some points in the film that kind of diminished the film for me overall. Okay. Um, it, it's not a great film. It's not a bad film. It's not an average film. It's an above average film. It's not authentic to the period and events that it's set in. I was, I was completely aware of that about half an hour into it. I was like, yeah, it looks the part, but it's definitely not playing the part. And it didn't feel like a Michael Mann film to me. I, I agree with you there. It's got, a, it's got a tremendous look. It's got a tremendous style to it. Um, directed by Mann. Cinematographer was Dante Spinelletti. Who was his, who's worked with him who, who is, so many times. He's one of his go-to guys. I think uh, definitely when it introduces itself, it, it's you know the kind of film that you, you're going to get from the from the get-go. It, it's very yeah. very stylized. It's a, it's a rip-roaring adventure in a, in an old-fashioned way. There was just something mm-hmm. of the aesthetic that I really really liked about it when I first saw it, uh, more so than what I remember the story. I just love the aesthetic of it more than anything else. The strongest impression I got from the film was that Daniel Day-Lewis can certainly run in slow motion. With long hair. when As someone who has long hair, running in <laughs> slow motion is a must. He looks great in the multiple slow motion running shots, but it got to the stage with the slow motion running shots that I actually found myself starting to chuckle at any times that it started happening because it was happening too much. It's 
it's an interesting film set around interesting events. From what I understand, the book itself that it's adapted from is pretty much unreadable. Yeah, um, it's a it mess. Is. And, you know, this was more an adaptation of the 1936 film adaptation, uh, which is very highly regarded. Yeah, it, it's a good film, but it it just has moments that just, it kind of dates it as a 1990s film. When it's when it's when it should be a period piece that is dated in the period it's set in, and so it doesn't lose substance over time. As a result of how it's been made, you definitely know that this was made in the nineties, and it suffers as a result of it. But can you not say that about about the western? I mean, you look at you look at westerns from the fifties and sixties. No matter how good they are, they're they're dated by the time period, and especially when you moved into into nineteen seventies westerns, which became grittier. They are. They are about the era that, that they were made. They're not really about the West. They're about that specific time in history. The same with horror movies. No matter how great a horror movie is, it reflects yeah. the world that, that, that you're living in. So idealistically, they, they, they change and become dated. I, I agree with everything you said. It's funny, I've not seen it for an awful long time. I'm not even drawn to go back and watch it. I remember when it came out, and saw it theatrically, and I, I was just wowed by it. I thought that's the way to do uh, what is, as you said, quite an unreadable book now, very yeah. dated book, and to give it an energy that's not worried about authenticity and it's not compromised by that, uh, and and as a, is a sweeping big vista film with some big sweeping romantic ideas behind it, and that I, I really I really enjoyed about it. I think as a way of updating that particular story, I, I still remember the BBC version, which was shot, I think, in uh, uh, in in Scotland, uh, doubling up for the for the US, uh, and and it gave it that sense of uh, it gave it a sense of style and grandeur that I think influenced other films, and and it's very much about the time, and we would probably now get a, a, a gritty, much more politically correct version of it. I can see that. One thing that stood out, and on reflection, this, you know, as a huge fan of Michael Mann, it was the absence of something that kind of made it not feel right to me. I missed the cityscapes. I missed the urban jungles that he sets his films in because he uses the environment around it as a character in itself in his films. And in this, the landscapes are delightful and they're well captured by uh, uh, Spinotti. Absolutely beautiful visions of like mountains and forests etc but they're not a character and so it doesn't become a part of the story the environment is not part of the story in the same way that every other michael mann film the environment it's set in feels like a character within the story and that i think as a fan of man going in to watch a michael mann film that might be one of the things that kind of made me step back and go oh i'm not connected with this as much which for me is the exact opposite to be honest because i thought he did bring that aesthetic of of the environment into it and that's for me one of the reasons that it felt it felt very very sweeping in the way that that michael mann does it i totally agree that he does include architecture as part of that and i think the fact that it wasn't about architecture it was about the trees and the forests that added that element into it that that i've seen in michael mann but you know we can't always like the same things i'm glad you enjoyed it um yeah i as i said interestingly i've not seen it now for when did it come out? 1992. So a good long years. I, I, I even had it on DVD, and I don't think I went back to it. I watched it again. It's one I might consider going back to at some point just to reevaluate because 
there's elements that I liked, but there's elements that didn't quite gel with me because my expectations going in were completely different to what was delivered. So it's one that I'd like to give another chance at some point down the line. This week, uh, our challenge was to do a deep dive into Flash Gordon. So, Flash Gordon, directed by Mike Hodges, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, uh, came out in 1980, starred uh, Sam J. Jones in the role of Flash Gordon, Melody Anderson. Dale Arden. Melody Anderson as Dale Arden. Uh, a very young Timothy Dalton, a guy who used to be in Blue Peter, was in there as well. <laughs> Written by, uh, you can't, everybody now just goes, it's that guy who used to be in, in Blue Peter. And of course, you can't <laughs> talk about Flash Gordon without mentioning Brian Blessed. And to some extent, the Gordon's Alive line, more people remember that than they actually remember the film. Gordon's Alive! Everyone does the impression. I'm not going to, as you've just done it. So, as I said... The thing is, even when Brian Blessed does it, he does it in different ways every time he does it. And it's, it's, that's the iconography of the film. When it's actually done in the film, it is very much a, Gordon's Alive! Like a query. It's like, oh my God, he's still alive. But whenever he's asked to do it in like events and public speakings, he bellows it. It's like, Gordon's alive! So this kind of came out in the wake of Star Wars when every studio was looking for uh, a big budget science fiction film to throw at the Yeah, screen. I mean, Dino De Laurentiis had held, already held the rights to this well before Star Wars came out because uh, George Lucas apparently wanted to make Flash Gordon. Interesting enough, in that's true. In the early 70s. And uh, Dino was having none of it. He didn't want this George Lucas bloke like messing up his idea. And so Lucas went off and made something called Star Wars instead and made a whole, whole load of money, at which point Dino went, hey, I want some of that money. I've got this material. And started the process in getting it to the screen. And uh, I believe, was it Nick Rogue did a treatment on the film? Yeah, no, Nick Rogue was initially connected to uh, to bring the film to the big screen. There have been production drawings that have appeared. There have been, uh, I've even seen some storyboards from Nick Rogue's uh, version of it. In fact, before Nick Rogue, uh, Federico Fellini was set to, to yeah. direct it, but that was never made. Um, but Nick Rogue, Nick Rogue was hired. Of course, Nick Rogue, if you if you know your film stuff, was uh, was responsible for the man who fell to earth. A very stylistic director. Uh, his treatment of Flash Gordon didn't connect with what Dilarontes wanted with it. Rogue was a big admirer of, of Alex Raymond, the original creator of, of the strip. He loved well. the original comic strips, but Dino wanted to step away from the comic book and play on the comic elements rather than the comic book elements. At one point, he considered hiring, and this would have been an amazing film, Sergio Leone to direct it. <laughs> yep. 
Another another huge fan of um, the Re- Alec Raymond comic strips, apparently. Yeah, he, and that's why he turned it down, because he didn't like what Dino's vision was. Yeah, he believed that the, the, this film should should adhere to the to the script. Mike Hodges, who'd made Get Carter, uh, was brought on. And, and to some extent, he was a director that uh, would, would be easier to control by Dino De Laurentiis and, and make the film that he wanted to. Lorenzo Semple was brought on to uh, write the script. As you remember, Lorenzo Semple created the Batman TV series. Uh, yep. He'd also written uh, Never Say Never Again, the uh, Sean Connery Bond film. No, let's not hold that against him. Yeah, well, that's the film to talk about at another date, interestingly enough. <laughs> uh, but he wanted um, they wanted to make Flash Gordon humorous. And I think Semple had that camp element to his script writing. He also made, just pointed out that Lorenzo Semple Jr., even though he's known for Batman, made the very fantastic Three Days of the Concord which is yeah. a stunning thriller. I remember reading a, I remember reading an interview with Semple where he actually, in hindsight, realised that making Flash Gordon a comedy caper was a terrible mistake and it should have been given the more serious adventure approach instead, which would have possibly helped its reputation at the time when it got released because the film was a flop. Apart from in the UK. Oh, you, oh we embraced it over here. Yeah, it <laughs> went down re- ridiculously well in the UK. Became somewhat of a, of a, a short-lived phenomenon. It does have a very European sensibility to it, more so than, than a US sensibility to it, if you know what I mean. We need to talk about the cast. Brian Blessed. Let, let's, let's start with Brian Blessed. Prince Voltan, the winged leader. What I love about the casting of Brian Blessed in this film is how much he embraced it how much he loved it, and how much he doesn't disregard it. He still loves talking about it. If you bumped into him in the street and just said, oh my God, you were in Flash Gordon, he would bellow out, Gordon's alive at you, because he loved the character. And this goes back to his childhood. In one of his many autobiographical books, he talks about as a kid when him and his mates used to play Flash Gordon serials like as a kid, he would always insist that he plays Voltan. So when he was cast, it was a childhood dream coming true. And that's why he's embraced it. And that's why he's never been ashamed of being a part of this film. Uh, you're talking about the cast. Of course, Mike Svonsidao, who we, we lost recently, is, is just, he is Ming the Merciless. He is in every way he embodies Ming the Merciless indeed. He doesn't play it over the top. He plays it in a serious way. He doesn't embrace the comedy aspect of it. He plays the villain menacing. And he manages to move that character away from a sort of the racist stereotype that Ming the Merciless was yeah. back in the in the in the comic strips. Now poor Sam Sam J. Jones. The film that destroyed his career. Yeah. It, he had disagreements with Dino from the start. He didn't like the direction that it was going in. He thought that they should be doing other things. And he was very vocal about it on set. And so when it came to them taking a break and then editing together and then looking for pickups, he was never invited back for pickups and voice overdubs. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd heard this story for a long time that um, that he'd been a, he'd been redubbed by another actor. I'd always heard that it was uh, one of the Keach brothers, uh, not Stacey Keach, but perhaps James Keach. Um, yeah. But it turns out that it was a, a dramatic voice actor called Peter Marnica whose identity was long considered unknown, even to Jones. Even though at one point there was a sequel proposed, but once, uh, and a bit like the George Lazenby scenario, he walked out on it, they didn't come back, uh, I wasn't invited into post-production, and so so any ideas of a sequel, even as, as vague as they, they would have been, 
never materialised. There was a, there's of course the end question mark, which is the last shot of the film. His his career struggled afterwards. Uh, he had bit parts in TV shows like The A Team or small roles on director video releases. Um, do you remember the TV series that he was very short lived, only ten episodes in the late eighties, The Highwayman? Yeah, I do. Oh, I loved that. Don't remember much about it, series. but I do oh, remember I, I, it. I do remember him being in it because I was, have very fond memories of watching that. Because it was oh my god. Sam J. Jones in a TV series. <laughs> Where is he now? Because he always ends to go, Sam J. Jones, other than uh, appearing in, in TED, is where is he now? Interesting to note that Max von Sydow, as Ming as well, insisted on being on set in full costume, even when it wasn't doing shots with him in frame. When they were doing the reaction shots, like with two-way conversations, he would insist on being there in full costume. And Sam J. Jones set like, basically said to him, was like, you don't think you even need to be here. They're just doing pickups on me. They're getting my reactions. They're getting my past the conversations. And he just said, like, I'm here to feed you your lines, and I fully expect you to do the same for me. That's professionalism. And I love that aspect that, you know, that, that can't have been the most comfortable of costumes to have got into. But he insisted on being there to make sure that everything was done right and that if there was a chance to do something in a different way he would know about it so he'd be able to then insist on getting reshoots of his side of the conversations marvelous mention to peter wingard as well as general clitus under really heavy um, costume design the metal mask the hooded robe who really really wanted that sequel to happen even though his character allegedly died it's his hand that reaches for ming's ring on the the end question mark and wouldn't we have loved to have seen him come back? I know that um, watching an interview with Peter Wingard from a few years before he died, and he said that he always hoped that he'd get that call saying, we're going to make Flash Gordon too, and we want you back. The film also starred Melody Anderson as Dale Arden. She had somewhat of a, a TV career afterwards. You can't forget that the, that the cast also had Topol in as Hans Zarkov. Yeah. Um, we mentioned Timothy Dalton. Ornella Muti as Princess Aura. Boy, we all remember... Ornella Muti changed yeah. a young man's life for many of us. Gosh, I, rem- I remember a few things about her. Uh, and Richard O'Brien uh, from Rocky Horror <laughs> fame popped up in there as, uh, as Fico. So it had a great cast, a British cast. It had, a, as I said, it had a very British European sensibility. And again, you can't talk about Flash Gordon without mentioning the soundtrack because it was performed by, at that point, one of the biggest bands in the world, Queen. And the song, the song is almost again... Uh, lasted longer in our memories than the film does. It's, it's, had, it's had a life of its own outside of the movie. The Queen soundtrack, not just that one track, which like the Flash Gordon theme, but every aspect of the theme score is marvellous. Brian May's screaming guitars and the, the wedding theme, uh, wedding march theme, is everything is a great listen. It's a great soundtrack, and it definitely elevates the film above what it should have been. It didn't find its audience. So it's, as we said, it, it was a big success in the UK. Internationally, it was a disappointment. As a film, even though we love it, and we, we love it for the, for the right reasons, it's campy, it's, it's, it's a fun romp. It is, it's, 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 it's got poor special effects. It has um, an all-over-the-place script as far as, as humour goes and tone. It doesn't quite come together, but it's one of those films which doesn't quite come together, but it's still enjoyable. It's a fun movie. It's a film that I can go back to and enjoy and enjoy and enjoy. And it's like like when we talked about Highlander, 
that we can identify the faults in that film, but you can overlook them because you can embrace what the film was doing and you, you get caught up in it. This is one of those films that I just get caught up in it every time that I watch it. And I'm happy to just pop this on at any time. And I'm even happier that, as we reported on the last show, the UK box set edition for the 40th anniversary will be coming out on 10th of August. Who'd have thunk it would have been one of those films that, that people celebrate 40 years on? Because it, it, was, it was much ridiculed in its reception, but it's got a it's got a huge fan following. That people like Edgar Wright, it's their favourite film. Uh, Alex Ross, the acclaimed uh, comic book artist, names the film as one of his favourites of all time. Uh, of course, we said it was mentioned in Ted. There's there's a lot of love for this film, and a lot of love for the fact that it it is so unique. It does have for everything that's wrong with it. It has a voice, and it has a style, and it has a sense of itself that that makes you think. You know, this is one of those films where 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 everybody just goes. It, it worked for what it was. Is it a classic? It depends how you determine what you think a classic is. The fact that it that it's loved, the fact that it's a film that has its own identity and works works in its own right. Everything that's wrong about it is the reason that everything is right about it. I can't be any more obscure than that. Uh, there's a great documentary on Amazon Prime, Life After Flash. It came out a couple 2018, I think which has interviews with the cast and people behind the film. It gives a nice insight towards uh, the making of Flash Gordon and where it all came about, and also how it impacted on Sam J. Jones's life afterwards. So if you're a fan of the film, get on Amazon and get that documentary watched. Absolutely recommended. Uh, but the 40th anniversary edition, when it comes out, a new 4K restoration. Yeah, that's taken from the original camera negative, isn't it? And actually approved by Hodges himself. Loads of extras on there. A new documentary about Nick Rogue's version of it. An audio commentary with Mike Hodges, audio commentary with Brian, Brian Blessed. Behind the scenes, stills galleries, storyboards, etc., etc. As well as little collectible comic book, little journals, postcards, poster. It's a beautiful box set and I'm pre-ordering it. Excellent. And interestingly enough, it's a film that, uh, well, it's a series. The characters are, has been tried to, to, to be rebooted. There was a, a very dreadful TV series that came out <laughs> about 10 years or so ago. Oh, yeah. There's a, been talk of a, of a new Flash Gordon film in the works for, for the last, over the last 40 years. I'd heard that Matthew Vaughan was connected to it at one point. Uh, Julius Avery, who did Overlord, and now... Taika Waititi is, is yeah. now interested in, in doing Flash Gordon, so it'd be interesting to see if Flash Gordon is is remade, is rebooted, that there is some sort of nod and throwback to to this nineteen eighty classic, not great but thoroughly loved Flash Gordon movie. We uh, we move on now because every week for the last couple of weeks, Andy has been sat in uh, his darkness, uh, <laughs> his inner sanctum catching up with all the Oscar-winning films that he's never seen. Uh, and every week I've proposed a new film for him to watch. Uh, last week we went through uh, Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans, and this week I set him a film which I'm surprised that you've not seen, and I'm surprised that we've not seen it together at some point, Andy, and that's uh, Goodwill Hunting. Now, Goodwill Hunting was uh, came out in 1997. It was one of those films that that literally changed people's careers. Both Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon were working their way up through the star ladder uh, and getting bigger and better roles. But this is a film that they not only appeared in, this is a film that they wrote. 
But not only they wrote it, but they won Best Original Screenplay in the Oscars for it. And it, it caused a lot of controversy. These two upstart kids who were uh, then in their late 20s uh, were, were making it as actors, but they'd now won an original screenplay. Many people thought it would they, they'd dupe the world and that William Goldman had come in and, and written it, if I remember. But it was a film that was a small film uh, directed by Gus Van Sands. Uh, starred Robin Williams alongside Matt Damon, Stellan Skarsgård and Minnie Driver. Uh, it's a warm little film. Kevin Smith was involved in it. At one point, Kevin Smith had been asked to direct it, but didn't think he, he had the chops to do it. It's focused around, well, Andy, you tell me. You tell me the story and tell me what you thought about it. So Matt Damon plays a 20-year-old janitor who's had a very troubled life, which meant that his instinctive genius and speed reading ability have never been recognised and drawn upon. When a professor, uh, Professor Lambeau, played by Stellan Skarsgård, vouches for him and takes him under his wing, one condition of that is that he must attend psychiatric counselling. And this ends up being the task of Dr. Sean Maguire, played by the late and great Robin Williams, um, who was an old colleague of Professor Lambeau, who has a very unique approach to dealing with Will Hunting. My feelings on this film, it is now easily within my top five films of all time. Fantastic. That's uh, that's a high, uh, a high esteem to be given for any film. I, I like this film a lot. And it, it influenced a project I was working on tremendously at the time. It was my first sold screenplay. Fortunately, never got made. And, and, and the fact that Good Will Hunting came out gave me the ability to um, to really, really move that script forward. And that's the reason that my script got bought. So I've got a lot of love for Goodwill Hunting and, and Clerks and Swingers all, all helped me sell my first screenplay. And so I've, I, I'm in tremendous debt to this film and like it a lot. It went through a lot of changes before it reached the screen. You know, the, it started out with Matt Damon writing this film as part of its final assignment for a playwriting class while he was at university. So it developed into a 40-page script. It was even involved his, his then-girlfriend, Skylar, who becomes one of the characters. And, and then he shopped it around, and, and Ben Affleck came in, and they developed it further, and then they eventually sold it. Uh, Rob Rayner looked at it when Castle Rock took it on and came up. It had a thriller aspect to it at some point, and that was dropped. Terrence Malick came in and came up with the ending. William Goldman read the script, and even though he denied, denied the persistent rumour that he actually wrote it, he just came in with some ideas for it, uh, as anybody would do in any production. So it, it is a particularly great great script and great film. I, I, would, I would describe it as a film so perfect uh, there's no fat on it. Everything that happens in the film feels that it needs to happen in the film. It doesn't feel like there's anything that should have been edited out. It never feels that it slows down. It always feels snappy, punchy, and keeps a momentum going. The narrative structure flows with such ease, and the characters breathe. The characters breathe real life. No matter how minor the character is, even if they're just in one scene, they feel real. Because the dialogue is smart, snappy, and never feels false. It's a showcase in solid filmmaking. Absolute yeah. showcase. The heartfelt moments work. You know, the character of Will, you look at the character of Will Hunting, and at the start of the film, when he's introduced, he's quite arrogant, cocky, brutish, thuggish, and could be extremely unlikable. But Damon plays him with subtle tenderness underneath that you straight away want for him to be recognised and to be better and to escape his world, and you have belief that he can change. 
And that's really key to it is that you have an unlikable character, but you play them in such a likable way that you start, you want to see them grow and develop. And as the revelations about his past come to light throughout the film, you start to feel more and more for him and you start to really root for him. It's such a great character study. And it's a spotlight on why Damon is such a, a great leading man. He has that charm in, in in every role that he does. And whether the character's likable or not, he has that star quality. And it really pushed both Affleck and Damon to uh, to leading men status. And you forget that when this film came out, you know, they wanted uh, they wanted Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio for the role. They didn't want these guys, and that they were attached not only as uh, as scriptwriters, but as a, a showcase. For their own talent and it was you know thanks to kevin smith who who really pushed it into and, and we can talk for the to the cows come home about what miramax became but at the time it was an independent studio that really brought through a lot of uh, a, a lot of new talent uh, and it gave them the opportunity to make the film that they wanted to they had great choice with going to gus van sant who they liked his previous films the, the brilliant drugstore cowboy Everything, as you said about it, is is everything falls into place to create a perfect film without a scene out of place the entire way through. From a script writing exercise, it's 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 a work of showing that what you need that ends up on the screen and how it's written works perfectly. And it's the small little details within the script that work. I mean, there's some great dialogue exchanges. You know, that there's the bar scene with um, demonstrating intelligence, uh, which is really amusing and punchy but then you've got like some great monologues in there yes i mean robin williams uh, you forget how great a straight actor robin williams could be and, and and the warmth that he brought to to almost every role that he was in it's so well written that even the small nuggets within the dialogue become important i picked up on this very first viewing the fact that robin williams's character refers to damon's like will character as sport or kid sport yeah so sport 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 but then the last two dialogue exchange scenes that they have he's now referring to him as son and that for me had so much significance that he's gone from being this distant i'm just here to coach you i'm just here to you know get you through this to he genuinely cares about him he sees he's the father figure that will never had yeah absolutely and that's the point. When he starts using the word son, that's the point at which Will completely opens up and completely breaks down for him. Yeah, it's it's got it's got wit, it's got charm, it's got pathos, uh, it's got it's got powerful performances, you know. Even if it feels implausible at times, you, you never want to turn away from it. You and you it never outstays its welcome. In fact, so much so that you can watch it again. Uh, and, and enjoy those characters, even though you know where it's going. It has a glow to it that that not many films have. It's 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 as we've used this term a lot over the last few weeks. It's one of those perfect storms of a film where everything in it works, uh, and there's nothing about it where you go, yeah, it just didn't need that or it didn't need this. And you know, it's smart casting, uh, some smart dialogue, uh, well written, well directed. Uh, and such a showcase for for two talents who you forget again forget yeah. at that time weren't the uh, a stars that they are now uh, and brought them into into the spotlight and and made their careers absolutely marvelous film and I'm looking forward to sitting and rewatching this again at some point this week we've chosen the very first and this ages me x film or 18 film that I ever ever saw <laughs> 
I didn't see it when it came out, but I saw it when I sneaked into it as a kid um, with a double feature with some Danish porn film. Long story, but I'm going to cut it short there. And <laughs> That's it what is. she said. <laughs> <laughs> and it is 1973's Enter the Dragon. Roper, Williams, and Lee, the deadly three, penetrate the secret chambers of an evil island empire. What do you know about Han? He lives like a king on that island, totally self-sufficient. A fortress without walls, protected by an invincible army that needs no ordinary weapons. This is Enter the Dragon, the first martial arts film produced by a major Hollywood studio. John Saxon is Roper. He was in it for the money. U.S. karate champion Jim Kelly as Williams. He was there because he had no choice. Black Belt Hall of Fame undisputed martial arts champion and international film star Bruce Lee. His job was to get them out alive. I'm hoping you'll join us, represent us in the United States. You want me to join this? Roper, Williams, and Lee. Just when they think they've broken the secret of the island, they find there is no escape from the inscrutable Han. Warner Brothers presents Enter the Dragon, where the world's greatest martial arts athletes meet the ultimate challenge with the most ancient and deadly of weapons, the human body. Enter the Dragon from Warner Brothers. Produced and starring Bruce Lee, uh, co-starred John Saxon and Jim Kelly, directed by Robert Klaus. It was Bruce Lee's final completed film appearance before his death in uh, 1973 at the age of, of 32. Uh, it was a joint American and Hong Kong production. It premiered uh, just one month after Bruce Lee's death, and it went on to gross over 90 million worldwide, uh, one of the highest rated um uh, action movies and especially Chinese action movies, not only of its time but ever. It changed the way that action movies for me uh, were made. It's, it's incredibly influential on a lot of different filmmakers, and we talked about John Wick earlier. And Andy, this is not the first time you've seen uh, seen this film, is it? No, I. It is a couple of decades since I last watched it because I watched this way back, way back in me early twenties. Um, I was going through a huge phase of all your Hong Kong action films, etc. And so I delved back into all martial arts history and Bruce Lee films. And because it, it's been so long, there was a lot that I've forgotten about this film. It is just a spy movie, isn't it, really? Oh, it's kind it, of a, it, a, a, a Dr. No. Of... It's, it's Dr. No meets Fu Manchu. Yeah. It, it, it's a pure Bond film with martial arts. Nothing more, nothing less. It's black exploitation meets martial arts. Uh, Lee gets recruited by British intelligence to enter a martial arts tournament to infiltrate the lair of suspected crime Lord Han, suspected of drug traffic and prostitution. And there there's an array of combatants, including Roper, played by John Saxon, who's a gambling addict, Jim Kelly's Williams. Um, in addition, the man responsible for the death of Lee's sister, O'Hara, is in the tournament. So there's the revenge plot device into the mix as to why he takes this mission. It is a B-movie. The whole thing is something that anyone who's a fan of video games will be hugely familiar with because not only you've said that it influenced filmmakers, it's influenced the fighting video game industry phenomenally. Street Fighter, Tekken, Mortal Kombat, 
clearly inspired by and even directly lifted the ideas from the film in there. And even way back in the days of Double Dragon in the arcades, two of the characters in that were called Roper and Williams. You know, I never knew that. I yeah. never knew that. It's it's hugely influential. And re-watching it, it was obvious why. It's, it's such a well-structured approach to making a film. You give yeah. a simple plot, take, spy, spy plot, find out if he's doing these bad things, take down the bad guy, but put an action element in there in the most forced way that you can do. Hey, it's a fighting tournament, so we're going to see a lot of fighting. Marvellous. It's it's kind of one of those films that, you know, production values are okay. They're pretty good. Then It's not a huge budget. Uh, it's It kind of works, and you think about it now that it's got a, a white, an Asian, and a black leading man. Yep. It pretty much launched the career for um, Jim Kelly, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Jim Kelly went on to do others. John Saxon was sort of an established uh, actor. He went on to do a lot of B-movies in the very first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street film. Yep. He was already, uh, it was a, I think he was a black belt in Korea. Yeah, um, Shokatan Karate and Judo, who was a black belt in. And he only signed up for the film if it was confirmed that his character was to survive to the end. Because apparently on the original script, he was supposed to be the one who dies. And Williams was supposed to survive to the end. But that was swapped around just so they could get him on the board. And um, it was it was a film that's very much of its time. You know, it does look dated. However, and this is the reason you talk about Enter the Dragon, let alone before we talk about Bruce Lee, is is the the fight scenes and the action scenes are filmed are the antithesis of the way that action films, the majority of action films are shot today, where they're shot with really, really long scenes where the camera holds and it's not about fast cuts. It's, it's the antithesis of a Michael Bay film in which action is, is cutting every two seconds. And you can see where films like like the John Wick movies have, have taken that inspiration from, where the scenes are held and we see the action play out on the stage as opposed from in the edit. The way that they can manage to get this is that pretty much all the cast were martial artists. They cast it with people who knew what they were doing so they could choreograph fights that looked real. You know, we've already mentioned John Saxon. Jim Kelly was the karate world champion at the time. And even... And here's a little nugget of information for fans of um, Hong Kong martial arts films. Fan favourite Sammo Hung and a young Jackie Chan That's both right. have brief appearances in the film. Sammo Hung is at the start of the film in the fight against Lee. And Jackie Chan is one of the guards that Bruce Lee snaps the neck of. And, and that leads us nicely to talking about Bruce Lee. We mentioned the top end of this, that he died before the film was released. He was 32. He was he was an incredible star. Not only how unique it was to have an Asian actor be a, a lead actor in, in, in US filmmaking at that time. He was an international star. He, he became a legend due to his unfortunate death. And But his legacy is, is that he's still a fan favorite to these days. People talk about Bruce Lee in hushed tones. Um, and she, the, the death of his son Brandon brought home, you know, the tragedy behind the the Lee family. But but yeah. what Bruce Lee did, and it's it's kind of hard to 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 even come to terms with now, to be a leading Asian actor, a leading star of a of a of a Western movie was was unthought of at the time. That's why he was the psychic role in the Green Hornet. That's why his version of Kung Fu ended up being made with David Carradine instead of him in the lead role. Yeah. Uh, and, and But that started his film career because he went back to Hong Kong and he and he turned out a slew of Kung Fu movies, Big Boss, Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon. Uh, but Enter the Dragon is the pinnacle of, of his film career. It, it showed him that he had charm and charisma, 
by the bucket load, that he, he was a leading man in the same way that Steve McQueen was a leading man. And it was an, an, an expert athlete, an expert martial artist as well. So charismatic, just easy on the eye to look at that all movie stars are. He had a movie star quality. He wasn't just a fighter. He was a movie star at the same time. Yeah, completely agree. He's, he dominated the screen. He took that front central lead and really deserved it. Yeah, you know, like you say, you know, at that time, a lot of people of various ethnic origins were support characters, but he yes. was a full dominating leading man. No ifs or buts about it. And it's rewatching this and realizing that it was his last fully completed film before him passing away just really hits home what we've lost. What we, you know, ima- imagine more films. This is basically the pinnacle of his career. And he could have continued and dominated the whole of the 70s. Which really begs the question, is, is the, is the ultimate what if? What if he, he had survived? What if he'd not passed away at such a young age? Yeah, it, what kind of a film? I mean, he, if he was alive now, he'd be in his 80s. Would he become as, uh, uh, as popular as a Clint Eastwood? What kind? What other kind of films would he have made? Or would he sabotage his career in the same way that the aforementioned Jackie Chan did by basically selling out to the Hollywood circuit? Well, that was a time when the kung fu movies were grown up movies, uh, despite it being a, a you know a bit of a comic book, and I mean that in 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 the best possible sense, yeah. a comic book kind of B movie, and especially with it, its plot line and its and its characters. It was the fact that it was a grown up film. This was as as I said in this country was a. a and 18, uh, there were scenes cut because they were considered too violent, which was the famous nunchak sequence. Yeah. Being restored now, there is somewhat of a director's cut that we have a tendency to see now with a couple of scenes reinserted back into it. Not huge, literally minutes as opposed to, to full full scenes on it. But it, it it's a film that that was seen by grown-ups and it was meant for grown-ups. And, and in the same way that Dirty Harry was meant for grown-ups is, is where I'm going with it. It wasn't a kid's film. It wasn't a throwaway film. It was an, an important film at his time, and and people still talk about it now, and maybe because of um, of Lee's death, but talk about it in such uh, it's having such a legacy on action films. Well, in two thousand and four, it was um, added to preservation by the National Film Registry for the reasons of being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, and you can't argue with that because it it, it is it's hugely influential of the culture and the history of the time that it was made and it still stands up so well like you say it's it looks a bit b-movie-ish because production values have changed so much over the years but it holds up it holds up perfectly because it, it does doesn't, the fight it, scenes are it doesn't need to be anything overly done and overly represented it it keeps it it looks real and that's what makes it still stand up because it doesn't look like it's been artificially created. It looks brutal. It looks thuggish. It looks real. And what elevates it into good cinema is that last sequence for me, which is the which is the Lee character played by Bruce Lee and and Mr. Han, uh, the bad guy, and that Hall of Mirrors fight yeah. scene. Then it suddenly elevates it from just beyond a B movie, from beyond a sort of uh, 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 kung fu Bond film into into great cinema and 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 just great choreography, fight choreography at, at its best. And I don't think we've ever seen anything as good. We've seen great stunts in Kung Fu movies and we've we've seen it, but there's a brutality to that fight sequence. Yeah. Uh, the classic slashes are the, 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 
that Lee's character gets from the from the clawed hand. It's my hope that uh, when the Shang Chi film does come out, that's the kind of kung fu movie I want it to be. I want it to have that that gritty realism, uh, even if it's fighting you know uh, amazing amazing foes, yeah. science fiction foes. I want to see that Shang Chi movie in my head because that was the influence on comics. It was a huge influence on 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 mainstream media that film. Uh, and for comics, Master of Kung Fu, the Shang Chi title was that, and absolutely unbelievable. And that's where I hope they go with it. A remake of the film has been in the pipeline for over a decade now. Names attached over the past decade have been Spike Lee was attached for a couple of years. Yeah, I, I only found out that, about that recently. I think I think Spike Lee would have been an interest to had an interesting approach to it, but then after him, Brett Ratner. So hopefully that was uh, never going to come to fruition. And more recently, David Leach has been attached. Who would be perfect? Who would be yeah. absolutely uh, perfect to, to do that because he understands how to choreograph a great action sequence and a great fight sequence. But it's it's not the fight sequences that made that film, and it's not no. the plot. It was Bruce Lee. It was that character, that actor. That's what that film's about. You can you you can cite moments out of it. It's it's uh, what all good films do. You can say this scene's great. This scene works as a standalone. But the the, the best sequences that you will ever talk about with Enter the Dragon are the scenes with Bruce Lee in it. No matter how good John Saxon is, no matter how good Jim Kelly was in it. Yeah, it's Bruce Lee is the heart of that film, and any other actor uh, taking that on is not just living up to to a remake of Enter the Dragon. It's it's the legacy of, of of Bruce Lee, and just how important and how fantastic and, and the term superstars banded around a lot these days. But he was a, a tour de force superstar and a great great leading man. And, and that's what you could never replace, even if it was a better looking film, uh, better fight sequences, which I doubt it's it, you, the, the one element you will never replace is a Bruce Lee. And the Chinese film industry have been trying to do it for years to try to find the next Bruce Lee. Uh, and even Jackie Chan went down a completely different route. Yeah. rather than try to to emulate uh emulate the Bruce Lee success. Chan went more down like back in his Hong Kong action hero days. He went more down the martial arts stunt work and choreography approach rather than the direct fights uh, to yeah. give dynamic entertainment. You know, with things like his bicycle chase in was it Police Story 1? Um Yeah, he, he's almost Buster Keaton-esque, isn't he? Yeah. He he went for the more more comical approach. So, yeah, I mean, a, a huge, hugely influential film, one that definitely stands up today and a great revisit. If you've never revisited it in decades and you're worried that it won't stand up to the memory or you've never seen it, go and check it out. It is definitely one to track down and watch. It's available to be watched right now, I believe, on Netflix. You can see it. Yep. If you're a subscriber, go watch it. If you're an action fan and you've never seen Enter the Dragon, go watch it to see that's how you how you shoot and choreograph a film fight sequence. If you're a fan of Tekken, Mortal Kombat, you will love it. Absolutely love it. And the film I chose for Andy over the last week was a 2010 crime thriller co-written, directed and starring Ben Affleck. And that was The Town. People get up every day, tell themselves they're going to change their lives. I never do. I'm gonna change my I'm done. You're done. There's people I can't let you walk away from. You're gonna do what I ask. You grew up 
stop right here. Same rules that I did. Find me a print so I can grab one of these guys. I'm leaving. Get that in your head. Boom, boom. The town rated R. Andy, what did you think? of the town. Well, before I say what I thought about it, quick background to the town. It's adapted from the novel Prince of Thieves by Chuck Hogan. And the story focuses on four lifelong friends who have been, have raised and been brought up in a life of crime as like bank robbers, heist pullers, etc. And they're pulling off one last big bank job. Things get complicated when they take a hostage and it complicates things more when they discover that that hostage lives local to the gang and so could possibly identify them. And Affleck's character basically checks out to tr- see how much she actually recognises and starts to get a bit of a rapport and a relationship with her. As for what I thought about it, we spoke last last week about Goodwill Hunting and about how Matt Damon, like with his script with Ben Affleck on there and how they both worked really well and they showcased how they're more than just pretty boys. This is an example of Affleck confidently directing. He does, doesn't he? He really... You know, Ben Affleck's got a gets a lot of kicking, uh, unfairly in my opinion. I think he's a, he's a decent actor. In this pro- in this film, proved he's a, he can be a great actor. I think he's turned into a, into a fantastic director. Let's not forget Gone Baby Gone, which was his first one, which is stunning. Also against the backdrop of of Boston, the town that him and uh, Matt Damon came from. Yeah. This film gave him his chops. It's you could use the term Scorsese esque to a degree, and, and not feel fraudulent in saying that. This is Ben Affleck or any director working at the top of their game. It's a, it's a fantastic film. I love a heist movie, and this is a perfect heist movie. I compare it less to a Scorsese and more to a Michael Mann. Oh, yeah, I can see that as well. I think it's a d- distant cousin of, of Michael Mann. He gets good performances from all the cast. I mean, Jeremy Renner's in there. Absolutely brilliant. He's playing what should be an unlikable character. He's a He's a criminal. He's a thug. The whole gang of them are criminals. But you care for them within the first 15 minutes. You care for these criminals who just want to do that last job and get out of the system that they're, they've been raised in. It's solidly written. It doesn't waste any time. Nothing feels superfluous about it. And like I say, it's confidently directed. Even the action, as things start to go wrong and escalate and another job starts up and it just... It just turns into a whole whirlwind of different events going on. And I've got to give a mention to uh, Pete Postlethwaite. This was his last film, wasn't it? Yeah, who always turns up in really horrible, nasty, bad guy kind of roles, despite the fact he looks like the most unassuming person that you could ever get. And he plays a real nasty piece of work in this film. From from all the people I know who would work with Pete Postlethwaite and, 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 and knew him, he was supposed to be a charming, lovely, lovely guy. And uh, yeah, he was, uh, he's, he's a dire human being in this. I mean, it's a great cast. I mean, not only have you say Pete Possaway, then Affleck himself, uh, Rebecca Hall, who I think is a fantastic actor. Uh, and don't see her on screen yeah. enough. Uh, John Hamm, who was still at that point, still big on Mad Men. And Jeremy Renner. And Jeremy Renner was, was still a kind of a, an up and coming name. He delivers, uh, I, I think almost scene stealing performance, and, and at times, and he doesn't, could almost literally take over the take over the who you who you who you root for. <laughs> yeah, even though he's he's uh, the antithesis in in a lot of ways of Ben Affleck's character. Uh, and Jeremy Renner just pulls it back. He doesn't. It could be one of those roles where he, he could literally take over the screen 
uh, and and chomp it up and doesn't but he has that he has that sense he's the brooding um almost firecracker violence that that inhibits his character is always there this was this was kind of your real introduction to to reno and, and sort of the the actor he's become great great cast let's not uh, forget uh blake lively uh chris cooper's in there uh titus welliver it's a fantastic fantastic film i absolutely love it uh and as we said i think people knock ben affleck for he did make some some poor choices as a, as a young up-and-coming actor but as a director he's made some fantastic choices mate go back to jeremy renner i always feel it's a shame that renner is so underappreciated yeah, he's not a leading man for me, Renner. Though even in even in the Avengers films, Hawkeye ends up being like ev- everyone like looks at Hawkeye as like, oh, what does he do? He just fires arrows. When he jumped into the Bourne franchise, when they tried that Bourne spin-off, I don't think that got the recognition that it deserved because everyone asked, oh, well, he's no Matt Damon. It's like, well, he's not. He's Jeremy Renner. He's going to do a different kind of thing. And I've got a lot. Every time that I see him in a film, I always find that he's really engaging. And he's a great screen presence. He really is. And this is the perfect example to turn around and go. This guy needs the respect. When he popped up in the Mission Impossible franchise, people thought that he never turned up again because he was rubbish. No, he didn't turn up again because scheduling conflicts. And he's always had that door left open for him to return. I'd love to see him get back to the Mission Impossible franchise and become another member of that cast. He's not a leading man for me, Jeremy Renner, and I think he has the qualities of a leading man. I think he's a he's a character actor who looks like a movie star. Yeah. And therefore, he's got that ability to, to breathe life into sometimes supporting characters and secondary characters. Um, I don't think he's one of those actors where where the audience buy into him as a leading man. There's just He's got an, an edgy quality to him, and that's okay. You don't have to be a leading man. I think Ben Affleck's a leading man and has that has that star quality, but I think Renner has that the the acting quality that that gives him that good makes him very strong in supporting roles. And and this is not as this is not to say this isn't a supporting role. It's a key role to this film. Um, it's fantastic. I, I, you know, I, I'd like to spend more time in this world. I, th- I thought it was that good. It's kind of almost ties in in a lot of ways with with other films where where Boston is a supporting character. Yeah, uh, The Departed, Mystic River. Um, you know, in fact, Affleck's Gone Baby Gone. Boston is is a is a great crime based city to do that. It's it's a good. A subgenre. It's got the accents. It's got the look of the look of the city. It's got an atmosphere to it. The way that old gangster movies used to be Chicago, Boston has that has that quality in this. I think it's I think it's great. And as we said, Affleck is 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 confident in his directing with this film. Uh, he, he's skillful. The, the action sequences work. I'm always I'm always uh, a sucker for a good heist movie. You look at this film and you think to yourself. Imagine if Affleck had have got to make his Batman film. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've got nothing against him being Batman. Again, there was an outcry over Affleck. Why I don't know being Batman because he, he looks like Bruce Wayne. He's probably the the first actor for me that looks like Bruce Wayne. If they'd not grade the temples, absolutely perfect. Bruce Wayne. Yeah. He's got the look of Batman. I never quite got the outcry, but I never quite understand fanboys. No, we never will. Uh, but yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed the town. It's definitely one of the stronger ones that I've watched in recent weeks, and um, it is one that I will be going back to rewatch again at some point now that I've experienced it for the first time. And this week, we decided on a film that I know that Andy loves, and and he knows that I love, 
because we're both massive fans of Wes Anderson. And that film is 19... I can't believe it came out in 1998. It it feels like I watched it yesterday because it still feels fresh. Is Rushmore. I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? Rushmore Academy's wealthiest alumnus has just met the woman of his dreams. I'm in love with her. There's only one problem. I was in love with her first. This February, the battle begins. You know, you and Herman deserve each other. You're both little children. I was going to try and have that tree over there fall on you. War does funny things to men. Rushmore. Now, this was the film for, for me where Wes Anderson really started to develop the style after his first film, Bottle Rocket. It stars uh, Jason Schwartzman in his film debut as Mike, who's an eccentric teenager, uh, and his friendship with a rich industrialist uh, played by Bill Murray called Herman Bloom, and their love of a common elementary school teacher, Rosemary Cross, played by Olivia Williams, who up until this film we'd not seen much of before. Uh, Co-written by Anderson and Owen Wilson, it launched the careers of Anderson, Schwartzman, uh, pushed Owen Wilson uh, in, into not only being a star, but into a, being a writer. It's a fantastic film that we both love. Why do we love this film, Andy? When I was sat and rewatched this over the past week, within the first five minutes, I found myself chuckling at the wit and loving the use of music and appreciating the framing. This film is an utter joy because of the skewed universe in which Anderson sets his films. And apparently this, this skewed reality that this feels like it's set in was described by Anderson himself as slightly heightened, like a Roald Dahl novel. And it was an idea that him and Owen Wilson had come up with, that all of the films like that they work on should have this kind of approach that it's almost real, but it's not quite, and it's a bit nonsensical at the same time. Wilson drew up drew on his own experiences of being kicked out of school in the 10th grade for part of the script. And I think that's what makes it work is that Jason Schwartzman is Wes Anderson. Yeah, I can and see using that. Owen, Owen Wilson's ideas of like what he went through and their own like pu- pu- public school and private school kind of experiences as well were all put into this film. And they always say, write about what you know. And this is the film that they clearly were writing about their own experiences and giving them this skewed little twist. And that's why it feels, it feels so natural. It feels so true, whilst also being a bit wild and bizarre. Max Fisher's a fantastic character, isn't it? He's, 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 oh, he's amazing. 50 years old he's, going on 45. He's the worst student at Rushmore Private School because he spends all of his time in extracurricular activities so he's got the enthusiasm to get involved in this, that, the other. He does productions. He writes productions for the stage based on films that are completely over the top and nonsensical, but they're absolutely lauded by the whole community. And he's such a quirky character. He's, I, mean, I know that Anderson said that he did make Max Fisher based on him, except not as shy, because Wes Anderson's apparently quite uh, shy and reserved, whereas Max is not shy about anything. He will talk to anyone. And that's how he strikes the relationship up with Herman, uh, played by Bill Murray, and they become bonding friends, which is a bit bizarre to have like a bloke in his 40s suddenly being friends with a 15-year-old boy. But that's a Wes Anderson kind of world. He's such a charming character, a great creation, that you you kind of feel sorry for, you pity, but you'd also think you do this unto yourself, mate. You're not you're not helping yourself at all. 
marvellous character. I think you described it best when you said this film is a joy, and it is a joy. I remember the first time I saw it being absolutely blown away, falling in love with Rushmore as a film, falling in love with, with the Max Fisher character, the style, the energy, the, the framing, all grew uh, and developed through Anderson's uh, later films, the, the relationship with, with uh, Bill Murray. This was Bill Murray's first role. He'd been a fan of Bottle Rocket uh, and did this for, for much lower cost than he, he normally would do. Um, this was the kind of uh, proto-Wes Anderson film. Bottle Rocket's an interesting film. Looking back on it, and I saw it recently, and, I, and, I, and I've got a lot of love for Bottle Rocket. Owen Wilson's fantastic in it. It yeah. doesn't feel like the Wes Anderson films that, that we know now. And to some extent, neither does Rushmore. This was a kind of, a, shall we say, a work in progress for, for the style that, that you, is clearly now a Wes Anderson style. Yeah, his colour palettes that he developed in later years isn't present yet. His symmetrical framing is kind of present, but not quite as refined. And his, his, mo his tracking of camera motion from like one point and then a quick swift pan is almost there, but not as fluid as it becomes in later films. But it's all kind of, it, it's like a testing ground that works. And it's his use of music. This is the film in which his use of music became key to the film. I mean, you've got Unit 4 Plus 2, the creation, Kinks, John Lennon, Cat Stevens, the faces, and... In my favourite scene of the whole film, a brilliant use of the Who's a quick one while he's away. Yeah. With the, like, get, like, basically them, him and Bill Murray fighting and plotting revenge on each other. And it's that slow motion sequence as the lift door opens and he walks out, takes the gum out of his mouth and sticks it on the wall. And that was the point when I first watched the film that I was like, I love this film. I love this director. And it was the time when I rewatched it this week and I went, and I really do love this director, and I really do love this film. I, I'm a massive, massive Wes Anderson film, and exactly this film, this film sold me on 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 the rest of his career. Uh, it created the relationship between him uh, and Bill Murray. Bill Murray's been in every single Wes Anderson film since. The, the style of the film, uh, the unique cinematography that that uh, when, uh, Wes Anderson has become known for started here. There's a sense of colour that he uses as, as part of heightening the, the reality. The, the little montage sequence at the beginning where we're introduced to uh, <laughs> uh, to Max is almost like French New Wave filmmaking. There's there's so much going on to this, as, as well as being a, a, a very simple film about a relationship. It, it's, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful film. I'm, I bought the soundtrack when it came out. I loved it that much. You, you're right. The, the way that, that Anderson uses music and, and use yeah. and use odd choices of pop songs, especially sort of yeah. British invasion stuff. It, it's it's fantastic, and in in every way, as I say, apart from being a proto Wes Anderson film, it it stands on its own. Um, it stands within the reality that that Wes Anderson's created. It's nicely off kilter. It feels like a cult film, but I think it's more than that. I think there's more going on for something. Um, I, I can't. I can't say enough about it without without bursting into tears and, and shouting "I love you" at it. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the dialogue exchanges. I love the subtle wit within them. I mean, you've got um, Magnus, the Scottish kid, like saying, "Why didn't you just?" It's off Fisher, you dotty wee skid mark, and Max replying with, "Is that Latin?" <laughs> and things <laughs> like that just just make me crease whenever I watch it. And even though I've watched this film at least once every year, I regularly go back to it. 
I've never grown tired of it, and I still find myself laughing. Bill Murray is fantastic in it. Apparently, they had storyboards for what he was supposed to do, but he was given a lot of freedom to just improvise on set. And so things like him intercepting some kids playing basketball and missing the shot were just in there because it's Bill Murray. Just let him do it. Absolutely brilliant. And, I mean, I've mentioned the plays, but let's be honest, you will never see a better interpretation of Serpico than Max Fisher's interpretation of Serpico with people dressed up as nuns and everything else. Absolutely brilliant. Did you ever see the, uh, or did you ever get the Criterion Collection? I've not, no. Um, which I, I have, which has got the audio commentary by by Anderson and, and, and Owen Wilson. But there is a fantastic, and I think they were used for the MTV Awards. They were, there was the, um, Max Fisher's theatrical adaptions of Armageddon, The Truman Show, and Out of Sight, and they were the uh, the the uh, DVD extras on it, and it was, you know, all uh, that's how much I loved this film. I had I knew once I'd seen it, I had to own it because I would go back to it time and time again. Uh, it's it's people say, and you must get this, and I'm sure our, our, our listeners get this. Why do why do you go out and buy movies, or you know, why do you collect movies? The same way that we listen to songs over and over again, they take you back to a time when you first heard it, or in this case, you first saw it. They they give you a memory. They give you an emotional push. Everything about the first time I, I saw Rushmore, I can tell you where I saw it. I walked away and and fell in love with this 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 film, and I'd never seen anything quite like it. And I feel that with every Wes Anderson film, I have so much love for for everything that he does. I have, I've, I have least favorites. I have favorites, but I'm never disappointed by a, by a Wes Anderson film. Yeah. I mean, uh, this was his first film that he not only directed and wrote, but was also a producer. Well, he was an executive producer on this. Every one of his films after that, he had full control over. It's good that the industry will fund these films that maybe won't be hugely profitable just to let a director have their creative vision and, have fun i would hate to see someone like wes anderson get given 150 million and then get walked over by a studio uh, that's not going to happen to a degree i know i think i think the fact that he he is such a independent filmmaker at heart you know a, a big studio wouldn't have made made budapest hotel he just just wouldn't it's just his style you know budapest hotel which is the most wes anderson looking film that wes anderson's ever made uh, it's pure Wes Anderson, everything from start to finish. Low budget of twenty-five million and raked in almost two hundred million. So that was his most successful film. Isle of Dogs. We don't know how much it cost to make, but what a film that was! I love Wes Anderson. I've loved every one of them, and whenever one of his films come out, it's always going to be within my top three films of the year that it comes out. I will always go back to a Wes Anderson film and still love it and still fall like for all the beats and all the rhythms throughout it. And and the announcement of a, of a Wes Anderson film coming out, I just start salivating because I know that I've got something to look forward to. Just before we wrap this up, a quick kudos to Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson is, uh, has, has done some very trashy films, but let's not forget that Owen Wilson is a, is a great writer. He not only uh, co-wrote this, he co-wrote Royal Tenenbaums. You know, his, his career is interlinked with Wes Anderson's. I'd like to see them do more, more together again. Uh, I've got a lot of love for, for uh, Owen Wilson. Forget about some of the films where aren't so great. But I, you know, I think I think Wes Anderson is um, Wes Anderson and, and Owen Wilson's relationship is, is is fantastic. I'd like to see them write together much more. 
yeah. if you want to see a film that is pure joy, that will will make you smile, make you cry, make you laugh, and, and also make you sing, because you will not leave the viewing without having uh, the face of Zulala in your head forever. <laughs> uh, and that was Rushmore. For the first time, you know, and I can't remember what the last thing we was we, we, we reviewed, but you've got a review for us. Yes, um, I've got a rather fascinating documentary um, called Never Be Done, The Richard Glenn Lett Story. So what are we getting into tonight here? Well, I've been blacklisted from this place. Um, actually, I told him that it's blacklisted for me, and that's sort of the case, right? Explain why I can't do a set here. No, whatever. Eventually, we're going to be kicked out. He's been banned from lots of rooms, so. Oh, hey! Yeah, It's the mating call of a cougar. It was only a few months ago I, I toured from St. John's, Newfoundland, all the way to Tofino. I was, you know, like it was, I was on the top of my game, I thought, just, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, and now here I am. New Year's Eve, I'm, you know, falling asleep on a couch with the, you know, surrounded by other homeless addicts. What's going on around here? So what are you guys up to over here? Trying to get my damage clothes back. I was thinking about this Roy, that my first counselor's name was Roy as well, an old retired United Church minister. And he said to me way, way back, are you ready to accept that if you find the peace you're looking for, you might lose your livelihood. But I've made some big mistakes. Well, I acquired all this stuff, but then I lost my job and my home, and... I realize it's in everybody's way, and this represents me, and I realize that I'm a problem for a lot of people, and I'm trying to solve that. I'm going into treatment January 10th for three months. I don't want to be that hard, badass, edgy, dark, notorious Richard Lett. It's not fun for me anymore. Now, are you are you aware of the stand-up comic Richard Lett? I do. I know the name. If you were to uh, put me on the spot and say, "Do I know his material?" Then I would have to say no. But I do know the name. He was. Qu- he basically went through. I mean, I I recall seeing on a few things, a few stand-up performances etc in like 2005 to 2009 kind of period and it was one of these very abrasive and provocative kind of comics a really like angry kind of show but also like some really good wit and some like bizarre songs which a lot of stand-up comics were kind of doing around that period well this documentary starts back in 2009 and it's one of those documentaries that is so perfect in the way that it was timed to start just as everything starts to go wrong. You know how like a documentary, so some documentaries seem so engineered to show all the light things. Yeah. This one isn't. This is a very, very like intense ride that you get took on. It starts at 
when, when he's more or less at his peak of his career. But he's also at the peak of his alcoholism. And over the course of the documentary, we see him battle with cancer. You see him get more and more addicted to alcohol and drugs, starts to push everyone away from him. The audiences he becomes more provocative with when someone gives heckles him, instead of just heckling back or just giving a witty retort, he gets very confrontational with them. He gets kicked out of the clubs that he used to play at. They don't want to work with him anymore because he antagonises people and crowds don't want to see him. And his whole life starts to fall apart and he starts to push away his family, his friends. And then there's a, there's a point in the whole documentary when you actually think that he's going to turn around and have a go at the documentary crew, he's ready to lash out at them and he pushes them away. And he loses everything. This is a guy who literally ends up on the streets. He sleeps in his car, has nowhere to call home, and then just goes missing. What you always need with a good documentary is is you need access, access to, to, the, to the subject and access to the people around them. And it sounds from what you're saying, this film's managed to do that and, and therefore gives you some amazing insights in, into, into the subject. Yeah, the, the documentary maker, Roy Ty, this is his first actual project. And to have your first project being what he intended to be just a, a look at this stand-up comic who he had a lot of love for. And to see such a self-destruction take place on film, you can't write it when it happens like this. This couldn't have been planned at all for this documentary to take the route that it took. And in taking this route, in showing this whole life spiralling down into destruction, it's just, you, within the first five minutes of the film, regardless of what you know about Richard Lett or not, regardless whether you know him, you're already caught up in his life and you can't help but get drawn down with him. His daughter is the one person in his life who gives him a reason to turn himself around, around in the film. The daughter's always been that one shining thing in his life. And she has a great quote in the film, of you have to hit rock bottom before you can reclaim who you are. And that sums up what this film is because the back end of the film then jumps six years later when the documentary crew go to catch up with Richard Lett and find a completely different man, a man who's got himself back on track. As well as his addictions to drugs and alcohol, it seems that he was also addicted to just being a bit of a dick on stage. He was addicted to being seen as a bad guy. And that's the character, the persona that that takes over his life, I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got his career back on track. And after watching this documentary, I went online to look at some of his more recent stand-up materials that are being uploaded onto YouTube, etc., and seeing how his style's changed. And it, it, it's a fascinating documentary. It really is one of those powerful journeys captured in brutal intimacy by the camera that couldn't have been scripted and that was just pure chance that they were filming at the time that his life was falling apart. And to see someone exposed, warts and all, and it's a harrowing journey that he goes on. I can't recommend this documentary enough. It is a really, really compelling documentary. If you don't know who Richard Glenlet is, by the end of this film, you will want to find out more about him. And how do we get to see this film? So this is available on streaming services to be purchased at the moment or rented. And it's called Never Be Done, The Richard Glenlet Story. If you do a search online, you'll be able to find the various services, um, Apple, etc., which you can obtain the film from. Fantastic. But we've also been challenging Andy to watch films that for some reason, and I've even called a priest to try and understand why, <laughs> Andy has missed. I mean, absolute classics. Um, and I've been setting Andy the challenge um, to watch something. And Andy, this week, we thought we'd go, because we did the town last week, uh, 
the uh, the Affleck film. So I thought we'd go for a comedy, albeit a, a very black comedy in 1999's election, directed by Alexander Payne, uh, which was his second film after Citizen Ruth, but before he kind of became the Alexander Payne that we recognize, stars a, a very young Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. In the nation's capital, a new leader has found a place in the halls of power. But her story began in the halls of high school. We'll move on now to the presidential race with three candidates running. The first is Tracy Flick. One thing that's important to know about me is that I'm an only child. My mom is really devoted to me. She likes to write letters to successful women like Elizabeth Dole and Connie Chung and ask them what advice do they have for me, Tracy, her daughter. The next candidate for student body president is Paul Metzler. I just don't think somebody would do something like that on purpose. I think you did it. And if you want to keep questioning me like this, I won't continue without my attorney present. I do not often speak with you and ask for things, but now I really must insist that you help me win the election tomorrow because I deserve it and Paul Metzler doesn't, as you well know. The final candidate, sophomore Tammy Metzler. I'm attracted to the person. It's just that all the people I've ever been attracted to happen to be girls. You should stop her. She's not qualified. We can't both run, can we? I mean, we're brother and sister, can we? Tracy and I are totally in love. In love? Yeah. So is this a moral situation or an ethical situation? When I win the presidency, that means you and I are going to be spending a lot of time together. <laughs> Cast your vote for Tracy Flick next week. You won't just be voting for me. You suck! You'll be voting for yourself. Who knew how high she would climb in life? I had to stop her. Excuse me! Will you please be quiet? Now. Paramount Pictures presents an MTV Films production. Order! Order! Starring Matthew Broderick, oh. Reese Witherspoon. Hey, what happened to your eye? What happened to your eye? Are you okay, Mr. McAllister? I'm fine. On the road to greatness, never underestimate an overachiever. Looks like you could use a cupcake. Election. Cast your vote. But don't vote at all! Uh, this was an MTV production, if I if I remember correctly. Yep, seeing the MTV logo pop up at the beginning of it brought back a lot of strange memories. <laughs> when they used to be a music channel. What are they now? Oh, I don't know. Um, I so, don't. Andy, what were your thoughts on Election? I remember, I've only seen this once, and I really liked it when I saw it in the cinema. But you tell me, what did you think to it? It's, it's quite a delicious, um, dark satire of American politics. The film stars Matthew Broderick, who is a popular social studies teacher, uh, Jim McAllister. And Reese Witherspoon is Tracy Flick, the perfect pupil who grates out on everyone's nerves. And she's the only person who's in line for the student body president elections coming up. So Jim takes matters into his own hands to manipulate things and enter another candidate. And that starts a spiraling descent of things that play out over the 103 runtime. And it's a, it's a gloriously dark comedy. It is. I, That's what I, I remember about it. Loved it. I was chuckling so much. Matthew Broderick is fantastic throughout it. He gets overlooked. I mean, he was great back in the 80s when he kind of kick-started his career. And like we got in th things like Ferris Bueller. Wow. And then he hit like his 90s and he did things like Godzilla and people went, oh, oh, mate. And that kind of like knocked him back and made people forget how good he could be. And he's marvellous in this film. His looks towards, it, like, um, towards Reese Witherspoon as Tracy Flick expresses 
utter hatred through and through without actually being openly hating towards her. As, as a character, she's there's something she's so perfect that she's also she's so annoying and she's yeah. so clawing and never really does anything particularly wrong to be disliked as much as she is as a character. But it's uh, it's based on a novel by Tom Perotta. The film the film is adapted to be sharp, funny, and thoroughly entertaining. Uh, the way that it's presented, there's multiple characters' voiceovers utilized uh, to give a film that a kind of like. It, it's as though like the events have already took place and everyone's talking about the events that led up to what took place. And right at the start, the way that it starts off saying like, and they never knew where it was going to lead. And you're like, why? What What went wrong? And the way that it does the voiceovers and each time teasing that something terrible is going to happen and something else is going to happen and something else is going to happen without spoiling what's going to happen. It keeps you engaged and it keeps you just going, but how's he got involved and what, what's going on now? Because all the characters start to come into it. You've got Chris Klein as Paul Metzler, who is the candidate that is pressured into opposing in the elections. And Paul Metzler, everyone will know from the American Pie films. And he plays basically the same kind of jock, brainless character here. Yeah, I wonder what happened uh, to him. I can't remember what happened to him career-wise. He's still been working, but he, he's just been on support roles and disappeared into the background. He never really managed to get past his American Pie kind of phase. I don't think many of them did, really, but did they? I, I mean, no, not that I... Uh, um, the lead, whose name escapes me, the lead actor, went on to be in uh, Orange is the New Black and yeah. did some Woody Allen stuff. I, I like this film. I think it was that 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 really clever mix of dark humour. It, it's intelligent. It's a film about teenagers, but it's actually a film for adults. And I think yeah. that's why, because when it initially came out, even though it got, got great reviews, and it's now classed as one of the 100 funniest movies of all time, uh, as well as a great high school movie, that it, it didn't find the audience. And it sort of found its audience afterwards. Uh, I think it's witty. I think it's got a it's got a bracing nastiness to it that that makes it makes it appealing. It doesn't go for the for the for the uh, soft soft targets. It really knows where to place the joke, and you could see where uh, Alexander Payne's career went to. And did you know that, according to Payne himself, it's uh, President Barack Obama's favorite political film? Yes, I I've heard that. It's a um... And I, yeah, I can quite understand it because it it is, even though it's set within a high school and it's a high school elections, it is a a look at US politics. Yeah, it's, it's an allegory of, it of, is looking at- of, of, of the political US system. Uh, and and by having that multi-layered, by setting it in a school, by by having the these incredible characters, it's a dark tragedy, but is extremely, extremely funny at the same time. The casting's great. Witherspoon in quite an early role. I mean, she hadn't really done a lot in the run-up to. No, no, this not film. at all. This was the sort of film that that brought her into really the sold her. Yeah, absolutely. She's marvelous and she is joyfully irritating and sells her part. But Broderick is just a perfect bit of casting because he's he's a kind of sympathetic character, but with selfish motivations that make him easy to hate at the same time. And casting someone who. It is hard to hate Broderick. It is hard to look at him and think, God, you're a piece of work. So having him cast as someone who is a bit of a piece of work makes you go, oh, but I can kind of understand where you're coming from. And you want to sympathise with him as his whole life starts to fall around through no fault except for his own. Everything that happens to him comes about because of what he does. 
And so he deserves his downward spiral that he goes through. But it's played in a way that makes you actually want him to come out better at the end of it. Um, it it's not top tier pain. I mean, that award will always go to Sideways for me. Yeah, mine too. Sideways is, I, I can watch that film over and over again. It is such a perfect, perfect character study. But this is a solid, entertaining satire and it doesn't outstay its welcome. I'm looking forward to going back and revisiting this uh, later down the line. Fantastic. We are going to sort of go to one of the pinnacles for such an Oscar-winning film as our, our next film, which was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What can you tell me about why you've been sent over here? <laughs> they think you've been faking it in order to get out of your work detail. Do I look like that kind of guy to you, Doc? Medication time. Mmm, yummy. Do you want to say something to the group, Mr. McMurphy? Another thing, Doc. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. Want to watch the ball game, baseball? I only count nine votes, Mr. McMurphy. No, I want that television set turned on! The chief! Nurse, man. Sit down! He's dangerous. Hey, what the hell is going on here? Oh, How about it, you creep, you lunatic? <laughs> you think you're crazy or something? Well, you're not. You're not. Uh, directed by Milos Forman, based on the 1962 uh, novel by Ken Casey. The film came out in 1975. film stars Jack Nicholson as Randall Murphy, a new patient at a mental institution that features supporting cast from the amazing Louise Fletcher, uh, William Redfield, Will Sampson as the chief, very, very young Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd, and Brad DeReef. This film has tons and tons of Oscar plaudits when it, when it came out. It was one of those which just was it was a, a a huge success the film had originally been uh, a broadway stage show which starred kirk douglas in the role of mike murphy but eventually kirk douglas who was trying to get the film made sold the film rights to his son michael who succeeded in get the film produced uh but douglas at this point was uh, too old to play the role he was nearly 60 so the role went ultimately to jack nicholson who was at this point the top of his game so looking back on one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, it's a film that I've seen many, many times. I've seen the stage production, which which was amazing. What's it like going back to moment of, of a kind of a filmmaking that, that doesn't really exist anymore? Where do you think it sits nowadays, Andy? Is it a film that, that a modern audience can, can look at again? What was it like revisiting it? Revisiting it, it, it made me love it even more. And I think this is one of those films because... The location is within a mental institution. And although institutions have changed a lot over the years, there's still a public perception of what they look like that looks exactly like this film, which I think makes this film feel almost timeless, that you could watch it now and still see the relevance of it today. The, the, the casting and the characters that the, play, the cast are playing 
are all archetypes of mental illness that we're all aware of. And I think in this day and age when we're a lot more aware of mental health and we're a lot more aware of mental health issues, I think there's a lot that people will recognise within each of the characters in here. Yeah, because the film's set in 1963 uh, at a mental health institution, which hopefully you would like to think doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, I think having the knowledge that you'd like to think that it doesn't exist anymore makes you actually be horrified by some of the activities that go on in there more than what you maybe would have would have done when you were just watching them as an observer without the knowledge of mental health back in the 70s when it got released. There's a lot of things that really make this film stand up. And one of them has to be the fact that they actually shot it in a mental institution. They used an actual... Uh, they used the Oregon State. Yeah, including some of the actual cast of nurses and doctors are actual nurses and doctors from that mental institution. Uh, the Dean R. Brooks, the director of the state hospital, is the director of the state hospital in the film. And apparently, I've read somewhere that during filming, he, he correctly diagnosed William Redfield, one of the cast members, with uh, leukaemia during the filming of it, which went on to kill him 18 months later. Having it set in an authentic setting, it was lit authentically as well. There was no manipulations of lighting rigs and everything. It was all using natural light through windows. So it feels real. And so it never feels artificial. And you feel like you're in that institution with them. There's so much to love about this film that the casting, that even the minor cast, which are all, we're all either stage people or new people to film, are all great. But the, the dual casting of the roles of Nurse Ratched, uh, Louise Fletcher, and McMurphy, played by Jack Nicholson. Who was at the top of his game at this particular point, really. They are both perfect. Uh, the book plays Nurse Ratched, it describes Nurse Ratched as, as a grotesque. She's a real nasty piece of work. She's purely sinister. But casting Louise Fletcher, who's very soft-spoken and very soft-faced a lot of the time, means that you, you can kind of see her point of view at, at times. And I read an interview with her where she said that she approached the character as though she genuinely cared for the patients, but went about things the wrong way. And you can see that in the performance, that there's moments in the film that you actually go, well, actually, she's only trying to do the best thing for these people. So she's not the bad guy. Because in the, in the book, it's blatantly she's the evil and McMurphy's the good. But they play it in this that both of the, the lines are all blurred that look like Nurse Ratched is just misguided and Randall McMurphy is very selfish. And at times he cares, but other times he's doing things for very selfish reasons. And you have to remember that the reason that he's incarcerated in here in the film is statutory rape of a 15-year-old. And he doesn't seem to care much that um, what he did was illegal. Yeah, because he's not mentally ill at all. He basically makes the choice of of going to this institution as opposed to going to prison. Yeah, so he's he's trying to manipulate the system and he's trying to do everything selfishly. It's just that he, he grows to like the people who he's alongside at the time. But it, it plays beautifully with those two, both playing very grey area characters that at points you'll be rooting for either side of this battle. And it is a battle for the souls of the patients. Yeah, they're, they're almost casualties of, of, of this bigger war between these these two leading characters. And, and and the interesting thing about this film is that at times it's a comedy, out and out, hysterically funny, and then flips a coin into into moments of, of, of tragedy that, are, that become almost profoundly disturbing. The cast apparently more or less lived through the whole shooting in the institution 
So they kind of got into routines of what the patients would have been in at the time. And they were encouraged to improvise like whenever they could. They could throw out, if something got thrown out as an idea, do it. If they think something fits into it. And with, with, you know, with names like Christopher Lloyd, William Redfield, Danny DeVito and Scatman Crothers, of course, you're going to get some improvisation going on. And uh, interestingly, um, Scatman Crothers doesn't seem to have a very um, lucky streak when he worked with Jack Nicholson in films. <laughs> <laughs> in this film, he, um, he clearly loses his job. And in another film, he gets an axe in the chest. But <laughs> yeah, but maybe, uh, maybe some personal choices you've got to reconsider. Um, I mean, this is a this is a fantastic film. I mean, it's it's one of those where the plaudits it, it gained and the Oscar nominations it, it, it had are are justified because on on every level, and you may go back and and have to reassess it because it's a film made in the seventies, but this is what for me seventies filmmaking was all about. It was that uh, you could create grown up films with with grown up issues, use. Uh, top name cast and still be a, a, a considered to be a, a huge hit at the box office in a, in a time when you know there were edgy edgy filmmakers doing doing incredible work that's why the 70s will always be my favorite period for filmmaking but it is it's a tremendous film deserves all the plaudits that he that he got uh, deserves to be recognized i mean i think it's in it's been recognized as being one of the the greatest films uh, in a, in american film history five big the big five academy awards uh, nicholson won best actress was louise fletcher best direction best picture best adapted screenplay this is one of those films that that deserves everything that you always hear about it if you've not seen one flow of the cuckoo's nest and and to understand why it's regarded one of the great american films then you just have to see it and even now, all these years later, it, it still packs a punch and you forget how great Jack Nicholson was in his heyday. Oh, it, he's absolutely on fire through this film. That's not to take away from the scene-stealing moments of Danny DeVito, who, to say that he never knows how to play any board games would be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Christopher Lloyd is absolutely magnificent. His facial expressions, his whole mannerisms, and he has like one of the closing like facial expressions of like triumphant joy um, after the iconic ending of the chief's final escape. And he cheers him on and gives that one stir of like, "Raw, you've done it!" An absolutely marvelous cast, absolutely brilliant film, and. It, it, even though I've seen this film multiple, multiple times, and usually when you've seen a film so many times, when you rewatch it, your mind drifts occasionally, you get distracted because you already know what's going to happen. But every time I put this on, as soon as the film starts, I am in there with them and I don't look away from the screen and I'm caught up in the drama. Like you say, it's amusing. It plays quite well for laughs at times and it doesn't feel forced. It just feels natural comedy. It's a film with hope, it's a film with sorrow, and it's a film which really does cover the whole spectrum of emotions. It's not often we get to say a film is perfect, but then again we can this, say... This is a perfect film. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. And there we have it for another one of the bonus episodes of Just the Reviews. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the main podcast and tune in each week to hear a selection of news, views, opinions, reviews and neat things from myself and Lee. And remember, watch more films. <laughs>